For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Welcome, everybody. It's great to have you with us, and I'm delighted to have as our speaker today, Dale Wright, who's spoken, I think, a few times before at Ancient Dragon. Dale is a wonderful scholar, uh, professor emeritus at Occidental College in Southern California. Dale has written a number of books, uh, including a wonderful book on the Six Perfections, He's also co-edited with Stephen Hine numbers of books on uh, various Zen topics, really fine uh, volumes. And then his most recent book, most relevant for us, Living Skillfully, uh, Buddhist Philosophy of Life from the Vimalakirti Sutra, which we are studying in our practice commitment period now. So thank you for uh, zooming in for us, Dale, and uh, please proceed. Good morning, Ancient Dragons. Um, thank you, Tygan. My pleasure to be here this morning with you in Chicago or wherever some of you are. I'm in Los Angeles, and um, it's early morning. And um, But uh, for me, any time to talk about the Vimalakirti Sutra is a good time. So. Uh, Tygen and I have arranged that I will talk to you a little bit about the goddess chapter, and then we'll talk about it together. Um, but let me say just a couple things about the sutra. Make sure that all of you understand what an extraordinary Buddhist text this is, and it's really unusual. In fact, I would say it's not just a really unusual Buddhist text, it's a really unusual religious spiritual text and you'll not find anything like it anywhere in any tradition um and the um the wisdom of it is uh truly extraordinary as your uh, opening chant about delving down into sutras say that something um truly wonderful happens when you read the sutra at least that's been my experience so what's unusual about it well um, it is, first of all, um, not just the teachings of the Buddha, or it's the teachings of the Buddha in proxy, where um, the first chapter opens and the Buddha teaches, and it's great. But then he begins to feed everything over to a layman, Vimalakirti. So for the Buddha to give the, the mic over to anybody is unusual for a sutra because they're the teachings of the Buddha, right? But especially unusual to turn it over to a layman. And uh, Vimalakirti, as you know, is not just an ordinary guy. He's a very wealthy person. So some of you will know the line from the Christian New Testament where Jesus says something like, the odds of a rich person, a really wealthy person, uh, leading a truly profound spiritual life are about the same as a camel getting through the eye of a needle. In other words, pretty tough, um, or you could say not happening. Um, and that would have been the same story in Buddhism, right? That um, Buddhism was about renunciation. 
and uh, about living a life of um, intentional poverty. And um, so to have Vimalakirti, this guy living in a mansion with servants, teaching the Dharma at an extraordinarily high level, that's, that's weird, right? That's really strange. That's unusual. Furthermore, um, the Vimalakirti begins a tradition in Buddhism of uh, humor being part of the teachings, right? And that's, that's important to recognize um, that early Buddhist sutras are pretty staid, right? They're pretty straight to the point. And the Vimalakirti is playful. It's, he's, um, he's all over the place in, um, in humorous, playful discourse. So really unusual. Um, it is, of course, one of the earliest, the first Mahayana Buddhist sutras, right, where the teachings begin to change. Sutras get to be longer, more literary, um, and, uh, and and quite different in their just their very structure. So um, to jump then to um, oh, by the way, questions. Um, let's, uh, I'll try to keep this relatively short and then let's talk. So any questions you have, keep them in your head and, or not jot them down. And we'll, we'll, we'll do that, um, um, with lots of time to spare. So the setting finally, after the Buddha is in the garden, giving his talk, he shifts it over to Vimalakirti and he's in his mansion. And we get several chapters that you've read where Vimalakirti is there talking to various people who the Buddha has sent um, to um, uh, really get lessons in the Dharma. So although we think of Vimalakirti as having a pretty nice house, right? He's a wealthy person. Um, If you look at the numbers of people who were supposedly there, it would take soldier field to fill, to, to house them, right? So there are tens of thousands of bodhisattvas and um, and Buddhist monks and nuns and and ordinary people there. So it's like the greatest show on earth that everybody knows Vimalakirti is amazing. And now Manjushri, the bodhisattva of wisdom, has gone there to Vimalakirti's house. And there's going to be Dharma talk, the likes of which, you know, that their expectations are really high. So, um, all of this is going on um, and when we get to the goddess chapter. And in this chapter, um, it opens with Vimala Kirti and Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, still in dialogue. And it's a great dialogue. It's going on. And um, it's the, the topic of every conversation, it turns out, once you get down to it, is either shunyata or emptiness. And you've You've been learning what that is, I'm sure. And the skillful means of a bodhisattva who's able to really get clarity in vision about how the universe is set up, how the world is arranged of interconnected moving parts. And I'm just, and you're just one of those parts, right? So that um, there is this deep t- teaching of emptiness that pervades the whole sutra. And that's what Vimalakirti and Manjushri are always teaching, no matter what the surface topic is, deep down, that's what's going on. So um, finally, and I'm going to turn to the sutra and point out this particular 
lying to you. Um, finally, Manjushri asks at the bottom of page 56, you don't have to follow along in your text, but anyway, I'll read it to you. Um, Manjushri asks a question. He says, down about mm, six lines up from the bottom, noble sir, referring to Vimalakirti, if the Bodhisattva considers all living beings in such a way, that is, if you think of all people as empty, right, as empty of own being, as just impermanent, and as like a bubble on the ocean, then how does the Bodhisattva generate the great love towards them, right? So how does the Bodhisattva get from understanding everything is empty, right? It's just passing through and um, and dependent and not something in and of itself. If you think of people that way, how can you generate deep compassion for them? How can you live on their behalf as a bodhisattva is to do, right? So you know the two great um, powers of a bodhisattva are wisdom, which is comprehension of emptiness, and Compassion, right? Those are the two sides. So Manjushri asked this question of Vimalakirti. It's the hardest question, right? If you treat people, if you think of them as lacking their own being, as being dependent on other things and always changing, um, where does the compassion come from? And Vimalakirti then starts out, it's a great response because he goes on, he's teaching about love. But if you look closely, he doesn't answer the question, right? And um, it needs answering. So I'm not going to answer it for you. We can raise it when we're talking together. But it's really the Mahayana koan, right? If you really grasp what shunyata or emptiness is about, you totally understand where compassion comes from. And if you are immersed in the wisdom of Buddhism, Compassion is completely natural, right? You don't have to make yourself be compassionate. That's just what you are. So, um, but how does that work? Um, That's the koan at the heart of Mahayana Buddhism. So I leave you with that for now, and uh, we'll continue on with the goddess. Um, Oh, also, I'm sure you already know um, a lot that's going on in this early Mahayana Sutra is a a playful critique of earlier Buddhism, right? So that there's something about Buddhism up to that point that needs a a reformation, right? Think of Mahayana as a reformation in Buddhism. It's a a gradual, non-hostile change that's occurring, um, that changes are happening in Buddhism that are important. And... um, that generates a new kind of sutra. It generates a new level of compassion and it generates the bodhisattva vow, right? The bodhisattva vow being at the heart of Mahayana and Zen, where you vow to live as though your well being, your wisdom, your enlightenment or awakening is no more important than anybody else's. You vow to live that way. Not that you can right away, but. That's what you take on. So um, the goddess then enters the picture at the end of this dialogue between Manjushri and Vimalakirti, and she's so happy um, with what she's heard. It's so great 
that she showers everybody. She's kind of sort of floating in the air. She showers everybody with flower petals. It's this beautiful rain of fragrance and um, and gorgeous colors. And it's uh, for everybody. It's just like, wow, this is so beautiful because that that's what they heard from these bodhisattvas giving Dharma dialogue, right? That it was so beautiful. And that's the goddess's response to them. But the flowers stick on the um, monastic robes of the uh, of the disciples, and they just gracefully flow off the robes of the bodhisattvas, right? So Shariputra, who you've run into before in the sutra, a very important figure in early Buddhism, Shariputra and the other um, monks are busy brushing the flowers off, like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And um, they are concerned that it's not proper for monks to be adorned, right? It's one of the Buddhist rules, right? A very important one, and there's good reason for it, right? Don't worry about, you know, the way you look, right? Don't worry about appearance. Worry about who you really are. Right. If you're going to worry about something, worry about something really worth worrying about. And so the the uh, the dice disciples are brushing the flowers off, and they're worried about the rules. Right? They're not following the rules. And as a disciple, they always want to follow the rules. Right? The rules are good, but the goddess is um, not having it. She says, "Relax, guys." Um, don't worry about this. The flowers are not the problem, she's saying. What's the problem for right now is your attachment. You're clinging to the Buddhist rules. Rather than stepping back and being aware of the beauty of the flowers, stepping back and realizing it's not hurting anyone for your, you to have flowers on you, just relax about it. Don't cling to the rules in this case. So the real issue is freedom. Um, the real issue is being serious about the moral rules because they're serious things, but also free of them and um, able to release their, the grip that they have on you. So um, she's saying that the rules on adornment regarding self-image are about um, getting out of your ego. Um, and that's important. But the aim that you should always have in the mind, in your mind is the big picture, right? Bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is the awareness of awakening, right? What is awakening? Awakening is not clinging to anything, even the good rules on adornment, right? Obey them when it's good to obey them and relax when it really doesn't matter. And this is a situation where it really doesn't matter. So, um, be mindful of the point of the rules. The point of the rules um, tells you not to cling to the rules. The point is to release yourself into an awakened state where you are wise about what the rules mean, what their purpose is. So, um, Shariputra then, by the time the goddess is done with him in this particular episode, um, he's a little bit embarrassed. He's deeply impressed. I said, mm, wow, this goddess really has the Dharma. And, but he's embarrassed because he's being outsmarted by a woman. All right. She is a she. And so he can't speak. He doesn't know what to say. And he says that. I, I don't know what to say. Um, 
And that's an important issue in this sutra. And later in Zen, in the origins of Chan in China, uh, what's called faltering in English translation. When you're in Dharma dialogue or what's called encounter dialogue in Zen Buddhism, faltering is when you get to the point where uh, you're so worried about looking smart or your ego self, what what should I say now, um, that you just falter. You can't say anything because you haven't been able to release yourself into the flow of the dialogue and the conversation. And that's where Shariputra is now. He's just, he's faltering. So um, I'm going to now turn to another passage then. Um, where um, Shariputra says at the bottom of page 59, um, since liberation is inexpressible, goddess, right? Since you really can't talk about awakening, um, I don't know what to say, right? I don't have anything to say. But again, she comes back at him and won't have it. And she says, um, therefore, Reverend Shariputra, do not point to liberation by abandoning speech, right? Um, and then she goes on really to talk about emptiness. She says the holy liberation is the quality of all things. All things are equal. You, you are equal to all others. Um, all things are equal. That is, they're all equally lacking their own being. They're not something in and of themselves. They're all parts of this giant movement and process that the world really is. So then she goes on and says, liberation is freedom from desire, hatred, and folly. Oh, no, I'm I'm missing something. Um, Shariputra says, goddess, isn't liberation freedom from desire, hatred, and folly? Okay. Um, Now, you might recognize what those three are, right? There are three poisons, right? Um, attachment, aversion, desire, hatred, folly, or uh, delusion, right? That uh, liberation is release from hatred and um, clinging and delusion, right? And so he's right, right? That's what liberation is. But she says, coming back to him, liberation is freedom from desire, hatred, and folly. That is the teaching of the excessively proud, But those free of pride are taught that the very nature of desire, hatred, and folly is itself liberation. Okay. All right. (laughs) So that's a tough one. Um, Right. In what sense? I mean, Shariputra is right. Right. But she comes back and says, no, that you're being proud about being released from desire, hatred, and folly. That's more delusion. Right. And, And she's teaching what we all need to learn is that there's no total escape from the feelings that arise of desire, of aversion to things, right? You don't like this vegetable or you don't like that person or this smell. Um, That aversion um, is part of life and delusion, right? We're all mistaken about certain things, right? We all just we don't understand everything. And that's true of everybody. That's true of the goddess. And it's true of Vimalakirti. It's true of even Taigen. Um, so we, uh, we all live in some degree of folly. That's the human state, right? And so she's teaching Shariputra 
recognize that, right? That's a deep teaching to learn. Um, but what's what's different here is that when desires or hatred arise in the bodhisattva's mind, the bodhisattva is able to smile on those, not identify them, not thinking that I really do hate so-and-so. Just let that thought flow through, release it, let it go. Be free of that. Don't cling to it. Um, so, um, so the difference is being able to let it go, not acting on it, not letting it possess you, not letting it cling to you by your clinging to it. And um, so it's a, a further um, ability to admit the human situation is the human situation. And there's nothing wrong with it. We shouldn't hate it. It just means human finitude. That is, we're finite, limited human beings, right? We're, we're just who we are. There's a way to live wisely and compassionately and skillfully in this condition. And that's what we're after as, as Buddhists, right? So Shariputra, again, he's no slouch. He recognizes, okay, good point, goddess. Um, and he says, excellent, excellent, goddess. What have you attained? What have you realized that you could be so good at this, right? Your Dharma eloquence is the key word here in Bhimalakirti. Wow, really astonishing. And she comes back again. <laughs> she says, I've attained nothing, Reverend Chariputra. I have no realization. Um, therefore, I have such eloquence. Whoever thinks I've attained, I've realized, is overly proud in the discipline of the well-taught Dharma. Okay. So, no claiming realization. She realizes that uh, whatever she's got, it's empty too, right? It's just passing. Her life is passing. Everything is in the enormous flow of the cosmos. Okay. So, um, um, the conversation then continues. Shariputra is very interested. She's teaching the Dharma at an incredibly high level, right up there with Vimalakirti, Manjushri, and the Buddha, right? So we have um, all of these men, and now suddenly there's a woman. And um, that, that innovation in the Vimalakirti is, I think, as big as the fact that Vimalakirti is a layman or a wealthy person, right? Those are breakthroughs, right? That's saying, okay, human beings as such, there is no human being who's excluded from the deepest wisdom, right? We all have that deep Buddha nature. That's our inheritance, and we've all got it. And the sutra is teaching that in this amazingly revolutionary way. So there's a, there's a revolution in the Dharma going on in the Sutra. Um, okay. So um, finally, no, not, not finally, a lot more happens, but the dialogue goes on and um, uh, let's see. Shariputra says towards the, about two-thirds of the way, three-fourths of the way down on page 61, 
He says, goddess, what prevents you from transforming yourself out of your female state? Okay, odd question. Clearly, she is very powerful. Clearly, she is really enlightened. This is an incredibly awakened being. Um, And there's a... um, a patriarchal tradition that pops up some point in the history of Buddhism that says that, okay, we got reincarnation, rebirth going on here in India. Um, and people think that, okay, the, the wisest, the, the people closest to enlightenment are inevitably men. And when women get up close to that, like they're on the verge, one more rebirth might, would definitely do it. Um, then they reborn as men. Okay, that's not an official position in Buddhism by any stretch, but uh, it does pop up. You know, Buddhism is enmeshed in this patriarchal tradition, not unique to India. It's everywhere in the world. Um, And so Shariputra says, okay, goddess, basically, if you're so smart, why are you a woman? I mean, like, come on. So so, um, part of the humor of the text and, uh, and the goddess's answer is that Uh, It goes on for quite a while, but she says, although I've sought my, quote, unquote, female state, I've sought to, you know, hone in on that um, for these 12 years that she's been a goddess. I've not found it. Right. Um, That is, if she's looking for what Shariputra is looking for, that is sort of a fixed state of what it means to be female. um, She can't find any such thing. There is no fixed state of being the female is what she's teaching him. There's no fixed state of being male. There's no fixed state of the Dharma. There's no fixed state of the planet Earth. There are no fixed states, right? That's what impermanence and dependent arising mean, right? Nothing is fixed. So she's saying, whatever you have in your head, Shariputra, about what it means to be a woman, let it go, right? Let it go. Watch me, right? Listen to me. Um, I am showing you that there is no fixed state of being anything. And um, so he's, she's teaching what in, in contemporary theoretical terms, what we would call the social construction of gender, that these are, these are made up culturally. They're, they're rules, they're tendencies at any time, in any place, different cultures, different languages, um, to think of those um, ways of being a woman or ways of being a man or ways of being a Zen teacher, ways of being anything, to think of those as fixed is mistaken because nothing is fixed. <clears throat> so what's she doing here? She's applying the teaching of emptiness to gender identity, and she's changing the whole mood um, the whole mood is different, right? She's lighthearted. She's playful. She's sort of floating around. She's throwing flowers in the air. There's a spirit of joy in the air. Um, Shariputra, representing the disciples, he's stiff. He's moral. He's a good person, but he has zero sense of humor, right? And he has no humility, right? He's always trying to get the upper hand. He needs to win this debate. Um, so, um, so her humor is... A lesson to him, we don't know if he ever gets it, but um, it, that the sutra is also teaching that in humor, in laughter, when we laugh, we really let it go, right? We really release. 
It's uncontrollable. So think back in your life where you were laughing so hard that you had no control, right? Um, like, like picture myself where eyes are running, I'm bawling, I'm, I'm, cry, I'm laughing so hard, I'm crying. There's no distinction between them. And I, my face is all contorted. I must look like shit. And I don't care, right? It's just so fucking funny that it's just going. Um, so um, laughter turns into these tears and it's a complete release, right? So it's one of those moments in life where um, you, you have to let go. You're made to let go by some situation in the world. You're dependent on that funny thing making you let go. And it's just so stupid, funny, that's just humbling. So the Dharma discipline is that that letting go is part of it, right? So that there's two sides here, right? There is absolute discipline, like shut up, sit down, do zazen. You know, you don't want to do it today? So what? Do it. Um, um, You don't want to read the sutra? Do it. Uh, You don't want to go to work? Do it. Discipline, right? Discipline. Of throughout our lives, that's what it means to be an adult, right? That's what it means to be a mature, serious, wise person. But unless on the other side, you can release that into humility and a kind of letting go and a release of all the stiffness that comes from discipline, um, then the discipline throws you off, right? It's not a skillful way of being in the world. So both are essential, right? You, you really... Um, need to be able to let go as well as tighten up. So it's obvious that the the goddess is as awakened as she is and as eloquent as she is because of lifetimes of discipline. Um, She's really worked hard to get there, but now she's playing. She's not controlling. Um, She is free. Uh, she has self-rule and uh, she has discipline and release whenever she needs. It's think of music as an example here, but uh, a great musician is really disciplined. It's practice, 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 practice every day, hours. But then when this person, when she gets into the state on her piano or the violin or the guitar, it's complete release and the music just flows and she's just hearing the music and the, and the, the, the music itself is bringing her to the right place on the guitar or the piano. Uh, it's not, she's not focused so much as being able to let it go. So that way in life too. And so that's one of the most important themes in Zen from my point of view, that um, if Zen is a joyless struggle, you're not there yet. You don't have it right. If if your sitting is a joyless struggle, okay, today get up and go ride your bike, right? <laughs> so there's something um, important in Zen that's teaching that kind of release. And we see it brilliantly in Dogen, in the Chinese Zen masters, um, even in the some of the wild monks that Dogen had a real problem with. That uh, some of them are part of this tradition of of letting go, and some of them letting go way too far, getting caught, clinging to the letting go, and forgetting the discipline. Right? That's the other out of balanced dimension to this. Okay, my inclination is to shut up and let you ask questions at this point. 
So um, I always have more to say, but um, I would be happier if you post questions of various sorts or make comments, whatever you would like. Thank you, Dale. Yes, please, everyone, anyone, uh, comments, questions, responses. Uh, Bo, maybe you could uh, help call on people in, in the room in Lincoln Square or on online. Eve. So, so we were told that Dogen didn't like the Vimala Tirti Sutra. Uh, <laughs> so why is that? Why? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, he didn't like Vimalakirti, and it comes up pretty often. Um, well, not not hugely often, but um, here's my theory on it. Um, one, I don't think that Dogen spent a lot of time reading the Vimalakirti Sutra. Had he read it um, um, to a great extent, I think he would have discovered a great affinity between his own way of teaching and Vimalakirti's way of teaching. But why did he dislike it? Um, monks in China, who were called, uh, we often refer in English to them as wild monks, were, um, and some of them really disreputable monks, were claiming that the Vimalakirti Sutra told them that they didn't have to pay, they didn't have to be monks anymore. They didn't have to be disciplined in the Dharma. They could just do whatever they want and um, and that that would be fine. And they thought that there's a chapter coming up in the book where Vimalakirti goes silent. He won't even talk. Um, and um, some of these monks in China were saying, you can't talk about the Dharma. Let's don't do that. So they were basically saying the, the teachings of Buddhism, who cares? Yeah, who cares? And of course, Dogen knows that's total foolishness. Now that's completely wrong. And um, so Dogen in traveling in China would have encountered these monks who were using the Vimalakirti as an excuse for breaking the rules, not being monks anymore. Some of them in fact were going around to wealthy people saying that, look, look, look at Vimalakirti. You know, you don't have to worry about anything. Um, you're rich, you're good, you're fine. Um, the discipline of Dharma, don't worry about it. But um, all of that's a total misreading of the Vimalakirti. It's not a reading of the Vimalakirti Sutra. It's using it as an excuse. Because if you look at what the Vimalakirti Sutra is doing, it's teaching the Dharma like Dogen's teaching the Dharma at an extremely high level. So the teachings are fundamental. And um, it's not saying don't be a monastic. It's not saying that's not good. It's just saying everybody's got it. You don't have to do that. If your life situation is something else, you're good. Um, do your Dharma discipline. Do what you can. So all of those things, I think, led Dogen to just be fed up with uh, the Vimala Kirti Sutra. Um, also, um, Tigan and my friend Stephen Hine has pointed out that there was a, another school of thought in um, Japanese Zen that was using the Vimalakirti Sutra um, pretty regularly, um, and that Dogen was in somewhat you know, competition with them. So he had lots of reasons for um, not touting the teachings in the Vimalakirti. And Tigan, maybe you have more. 
Well, just thank you, Dale. Yes, just to add that uh, the Darumashu, that other school in Japan, and other people, uh, you know, thought, well, everything is, everybody's awake. There's no, there's no need to practice. You don't have to do zazen. You don't have to pay attention to uh, what's happening in your life. And that's not what the Malakirti Sutra is saying, obviously, but some people misread it that way. Yeah. Yeah, and they're also simultaneous to that, the the growing um, pure land Buddhism in Japan was saying, you know, um, the pride of disciplining yourself in meditation and the Dharma was maybe not a good thing. Um, Anyway, that's all I've got for an answer on that one. Thank you, though. Great question. Somebody else? Hello, Dale. This is Dylan. Um, I wanted to uh, really love the talk. Thank you for um, uh, for for that. Um, I I really love the um, early critique of gender as a social as a social construct. Um, that's that's really uh, heartening and interesting to to discover. Um, I wanted to talk about your the question that the sutra poses about how how do you generate you know deep compassion when you know that uh, you know every being is or every person is uh, finite and limited and uh, dependent basically, uh, and like my instinct just says that. That, that that is the reason to be compassionate that like we there there's a that there's like this incredibly deep maybe the most fundamental aspect of our nature that is the solidarity of being finite beings and that 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 um that spirit of solidarity is the the essence of buddha nature and is the essence of practice and that shared recognition of I don't know, maybe suffering is too strong a word, but the, the dissatisfactoriness of life being a result of um, uh, how um, uh, everything's temporary, that, that that is the engine for practice and that is the engine for compassion uh, because, you know, we know deep in our hearts that we're in this together and that, it, you know, we're, we're not going to be like this forever that we, everything's going to keep changing and that as a result, you know, the, a lot of the meaning in life can come from taking care of that process. Um, but that's, that's just what my heart says. Yeah. Well, your heart and your instinct, as you put it at the beginning is spot on. I mean, that's, that's a, that's, that's a great answer. Um, had Vimalakirti said what Dylan just said in response to Manjushri's question, um, um, that would have been a, a, a way better answer <laughs> because it really answers the question, right? If you're thinking of people in this way um, as empty of their own being, um, how is it you can be compassionate? Well, the, the question really goes back the other way. If you're not thinking of them in that way, how could you possibly be compassionate? for? If they're fixed, if they can't change, um, if they're not open to the influence, and all of us in the same boat, then, you know, what's the point of the Dharma? So um, it's really a matter of being able to recognize ourselves 
conceive of ourselves intellectually, but also just have that a deep feeling that generates compassion and have those instincts deep down that we're all connected in this way. We're all similar in this way. And um, therefore, love for others is once you get that, the most natural response, right? That's that's the deepest way to be human if you really understand what it means to be human. And if you have that deep, compassionate feeling in you. So, um, no, that's terrific. Um, and that's that's a koan to come back to over and over again and to meditate on that and to recognize that this negative word emptiness, shunyata, zero, nothingness, is exactly the opposite of that while it while it still is emptiness it is fullness in the fullest degree and uh, that it um and because of that that negative word was used um over and over buddhists have to bring that correction back into the picture um so there was a tibetan teacher um herbert gunter who used the word openness to translate shunyata that what it means to be uh, shunya or empty is really to be open, to be open to the inflow or influence of um, all things from the world, to be open to the world. All things are open to what's coming to them from the outside. Nothing is just what it is on its own, but is open to all kinds of things coming in uh, into our insides. So that the difference between inside and outside is a relative minor difference. So that might have been a more helpful translation for us into English um, of shunyata, but emptiness is a more literal one. So great. Thank you. (laughs) Somebody else? Comments or questions or thoughts? Other things on the sutra? Hi, my name is Nicholas, and I have a Question a comment. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess it's a question and a comment. I, I, okay. I was thinking of um, uh, William Blake's notion of like holy desire uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. during your talk, and um, I always got a lot out of that notion, and and um, uh, also it seems like what you're saying. In, in in just what your answer to Dylan was is that that uh, it's really about just letting go, surrendering our opinions, our thoughts, our notions, our identities, and focusing on the connection, what we have in common. Yes, for yeah. lack of a better word. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. And Blake's holy desire is exactly what's going on here, where where there are different kinds of desires, right? Um, um, and differences have to do with the quality of the object of your desire. Right? Um, if I desire to win the argument, that's not a particularly holy desire because it's really a pushing away. Um, if I desire to do something helpful, that's a holy desire, right? If I desire that the poor and starving be fed and clothed and housed, that desire is one I want to have. So shedding all desire is not the point in our word desire. Remember that tanha in the early Buddhist means craving, right? You can't let go. You're clinging, you're attached. 
So um, our desire, our word desire is a little looser than that, but um, holy desire is, is excellent. Um, that is a kind of excellence that we strive for. So that's, um, that's important. Um, I have one other oh, sure. uh, yeah. question. So you, you said, um, you mentioned that, you know, uh, you know, we can't talk about awakening at one point. And, and it occurred to me, it's like, well, we, we, yes, we can. That's all we talk about is awakening <laughs> constantly. So can we talk about awakening? Absolutely. <laughs> and if, if we don't talk about awakening, we're being really deluded. <laughs> right. You have to talk about it. Um, but can you grasp it? Can you know it? No, because there's no it to know, right? Um, it is always in process of transformation, right? What it means to be awakened, awakening in um, the middle of the 19th century in, in America meant awakening to racism and awakening to the evils of slavery, right? That's what they needed to awaken to. Um, it, it it varies, right? Awakening is going to mean different things in different times and places. So um, a clinging to any concept of it is a problem. But that's why you need to talk about it, right? That's the point of the Dharma. The Dharma is a profound conversation about being awakened, what it means to wake up in a general sense and in very particular senses. So um, one thing that we're only now awakening to that is really a theme in the Vimalakirti Sutra already, although they didn't know it, but we can see it, is um, a transgender, transgender possibility, right? That the goddess is transgender, right? She's switching genders. And um, we're just now awakening to the, that as something of a possibility. We don't know how to deal with it. We don't know what to make of it. But it's on the table, right? And 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 that's one of our challenges, right? So many challenges in our in in our era, and but they're always different in different epochs. Um, but yeah, discussion of the Dharma is discussion of awakening, and there's no avoiding it. But every once in a while, you have to say, okay, we're not grasping anything, right? No holding on. So a balance there. Anyway, thank you, Nicholas. That was excellent. Thank you. We have a, a comment or a question here in the Zendo, Douglas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dale, I, I really appreciated your book, and um, and I've realized how much more time I need to spend with Vimala Kirti. And in reading the chapter about the goddess. <clears throat> Um, thought about going to chapter nine and the door uh, entering the door to non-duality where each of the voices explains how they've entered uh, non-duality by dissolving different dichotomies and um, at the end uh, there's the statement well that's fantastic you've done a great job but all of your explanations have been dualistic. And I think you can even, you can take that back to the goddess chapter two. And it, it's, a, it's really, there's an, it's an illustration of the danger of, or not the danger, but 
the fact that the words are themselves um, using language always creates dichotomies and false uh, concreteness of phenomena. Um, you know, uh, the goddess has, tried, has awakened Shariputra from a false duality of male and female. But at the same time, by doing that, by switching and putting uh, Shariputra's mind into a, the goddess's body, she's created this uh, new dichotomy of um, body and personality. Uh, Shariputra is different from his body. So she's created a new false dichotomy there, which isn't the point of the chapter, and so that isn't addressed at all. But but it's an example of what chapter nine is trying to point out, that it's always in process. You deal with one duality, you learn to step out of one duality. If you try to explain it away, you create another one that you have to then explain away or explain away. Perhaps it's better just to step back from the entire process. Great. Yeah, terrific. Uh, wonderful point. Um, um, it's um, it's always true that we're always lodged someplace. And it's not, it's not just that we use language, it's that we live in language, right? There is a linguistic character to our experience now at this point of evolution. Um, and so that duality is always there as is the difference between things. There is a difference between good and bad, right? There is a difference between me and you. And all those differences, all those dichotomies are important to maintain. You have to always maintain them. But um, the point, as you've just pointed out, of uh, the duality, non-duality chapter, and really pretty much every chapter in the Vimalakirti Sutra, is being able to break through that duality and to let it go. And so Vimalakirti's thunderous silence where he's just saying, okay, those were all, what he's saying implicitly, great answers, but in the end, let's just dive deep and shut up. (laughs) Let's let's go silent and absorb all of this and and be in a deep mode of concentration. So... um, so it's, that's a that's a wonderful use of the chapter on non-duality to illuminate what's going on in the goddess chapter. Um, but that's a theme throughout the Vimalakirti Sutra. It's also something uh, interesting that you can recognize that there are problems throughout any any sutra, any use of language. But um, but it comes up in the Vimalakirti Sutra in interesting ways. One of them is. The Vimalakirti Sutra is all about skillful means, right? Being skillful in um, in the way you deal with people, in the way you teach people, and so on. But remember in the earlier chapters where nobody, uh, the Buddha asked Shariputra and asked all these people, go see Vimalakirti. And none of them will go because they get blasted by Vimalakirti's Dharma, right? He's just so smart in the Dharma that he embarrasses them. But Vimalakirti is supposed to be a master of upaya or skillful means. And if he's embarrassing everybody to that extent, that isn't very skillful, right? Um, so that's a dichotomy. The sutra wants to say, look at Vimalakirti's a layman. He's just so good at the Dharma. Even a layman could do this. But in doing that, it sets up a way that makes him look like, well, maybe he's not so skillful after all. 
But the author of the sutra doesn't even notice that. You know, it just goes on. Just one of those dualities you can't help. And, but it's kind of funny when you when you think about it. These are terrific questions and comments. I really appreciate them. Uh, we have another one in the Zendo here. Well, there's a quotation from our Dharma or from our Sangha that I always quote with pride to people, and it goes like this. Um, I, I hesitate to call Buddhism religion, but uh, in this it says uh, Buddhism is the only religion that promises nothing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I wonder if you'd comment on that. <laughs> yes, I'd be happy to. Well, that's great. <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, in all these years, I don't think I've heard that. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, in the uh, in the positive sense, that Buddhism promises shunyata, right? You get nothing. What you get is emptiness, um, and that's that's really funny. But also, um, no promise of anything because promises are a little fixed, right? A little stiff. And um, any assurance, there's no certitude in life, right? Nothing is risk-free. Um, we're, 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 we're in a, a game of finitude here of limitations. And um, when we promise something, we're saying, I will do my very best to fulfill this. But, you know, we don't know. You know, I promise you I'm going to give this talk today. I might have died yesterday. You know, um, it's just promises are you can't promise anything. So Buddhism promises nothing. And that's that's the way to go, even though it offers so much. And what it offers is the ability to empty or open your mind and really see deeply into the, the nature of human existence. Anyway, thank you for that. I'll remember that one for a long time. Dale, uh, thank you so much for everything you said, uh, and I'm hoping tomorrow evening to continue this discussion. I wonder if you might say, you, you said a little bit, uh, but I wonder if you might say something more about this uh, kind of double sex change operation uh, between Shariputra and the goddess, and uh, there's there's so much there that is unsettling. Uh, I mean, now, as you pointed out, it's gender fluidity is something that we're learning about or opening to in our culture. But anyway, I wondered if you might say something more. Yeah, uh, um, all of you would have as much to say about it as I do. But um, the, 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 the setting is really fun because Shariputra is so set in his thinking about what it means to be a woman. And he's asking, why are you still a woman? And she's saying, well, all of that's relative and all of that's empty. And um, uh, yeah, here I am totally awakened in this uh, female state, but let's just flip the, the coin. So she's able, she has these magical powers. And as you know, in the sutra, there are some miracles that happen, and they're all the skillful means of the author of the sutra. Now, he's not asking anyone to take miracles literally. Uh, it's just that um, they provide you know this power for the stories. And so he just flips their genders and there he is, Shariputra, and he's a woman. 
and he's completely flabbergasted, right? He has no idea what to say, um, which would happen if you flipped me into a woman right now. That would be my story, too. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we gender transition happens, hopefully, um, in a very thoughtful way where somebody through their youth comes to realize that they're just set up differently. They're that who they who they are doesn't fit their body, right? That there's a way in which there's a mismatch and um and their identity has to go through some change. And we don't have categories that fit that, creating enormous awkwardness for these people. Um and our, our deepest compassion for them and respect and um to be impressed by them that they would brave that transition. Um, none of that's going on here. Um, this is just a playful story about her being able to magically show him as a woman. Then he flips, a, flips Shariputra back and, um, and she's a woman again. But now, um, Shariputra says, okay, you know, I get it. Um, um, women can do this too. I now understand. Um, and you, you know, I'm sure stories of the, you know, the tensions about gender in early Buddhism where at first it's just the monks, right? Only the guys did this. Um, but then the Buddha's family come to him and say, hey, wait a minute, we want to do this too. What makes you think we can't? And he has no real answer for that. He said, you know, I don't know, let me think about it. And so he forms uh, a separate sangha for the women, unfortunately subordinates them to the monks in certain ways, Um and so the patriarchy still carries forward. But we have to recognize that uh, you can only get away with so much change in any time and place, right? And so the Buddha has to, in some way, kowtow to political leadership, and he has to you know, deal with the customs of the time to the extent that would allow Buddhism to be something, right? Um, but he's working these sometimes subtle, sometimes really revolutionary transformations for women to be able to lead religious lives and to be celibate, um, unheard of, right? That just wasn't happening um, anywhere in the world. So um, so there, there was, has always been, and this is still going on in Buddhism and everywhere else, workings with sexuality and gender, you know, it's in process, right? It is, as the Buddha said, empty, right? There is no fixed being to this. And um, and we have to learn to deal with that. We have time for couple more questions or comments, uh, anyone? Uh, could a credo of the goddess be not always so? Which is a Zen saying my friend Ken used to say a lot. I, I'm sorry, there was a blank on the first couple words of that. Could you say it again, please? Uh, I was just wondering if a you know, if the goddess had a, a credo, credo, um, could it be the phrase, not always so? That would be a great credo for the goddess. Yeah, she doesn't have one, um, but um, that would be perfect. <laughs> that would be perfect. Uh, 
And of course, that was something Suzuki Roshi used to say. Yeah, not always so, won't be so. <laughs> Get used yeah. to it. <laughs> no, that's that's great. You know, there's something else to realize about this sutra and about the goddess chapter is that we pretty much have to assume that a man or men wrote this, right? Okay. So um, women, a few women were being allowed into the literary arts. You know, um, we we have the Terigata, um, which is beautiful writing by women. But um, overwhelmingly, men did the writing. And um, when it came to sutras, I think we can pretty much guarantee that men wrote the sutras. Um, so, um, so, so just guessing that men wrote this, um, or a man, um, it was, you know, there were limits to that. And one of those limits was he could have made the goddess, not a goddess, but a bodhisattva, just like Manjushri, a bodhisattva, just like the others who were gathered there that day. He could have made the goddess the matriarch of Vimalakirti's wife, right? Um, he could have made the goddess a servant in the house of Vimalakirti and really pulled the plug on gender identity. But the author of the sutra, being a man, um, had to, I think, um, go ahead and make this really wise female something above human, just a little bit above human. She has extra powers. Um, so that's an escape clause here, right? He's not saying women can do this entirely, <laughs> but um, but should have, right? And we can say that. Uh, we have to say that because it's just true, right? In our time, that's just true. Um, so um, that's just this little limitation on what this author could do with this brilliant theme. And it's interesting too, this theme just sort of sat there through century after century after century, and nobody really picked up on it through the history of Buddhism until you get to our time when gender identity and sexuality and all these issues have come to the fore. And suddenly we look at this chapter and say, wow, this was written 2,000 years ago? You know, nobody noticed it, particularly up until now, and now it's just explosive. Now it's one of the most transformative chapters in the whole history of Buddhism for us. Um, so things change, and this has changed for us, and it just opens whole new avenues, whole new vistas for our introspective work with the Dharma. We have a Question or comment here in the Zendo, Alex? Thank you again for the great talk. And um, I, I guess what's interesting, I, I work as a, as a teacher, and we're, we're always uh, discouraging the kids to tease from teasing each other. Um, and that, uh, you know, teasing is being sort of mean-spirited. But all of my friendships and, and my relationship has been marked by a lot of mutual teasing and uh it seems like there's a lot of that in Vimala Kirti and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the yeah pretty quality of teasing of ribbing yeah 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 um yeah that's very good yeah uh, a, a friendship without teasing is a limited friendship I think you're right um and your teacher um, what grade level uh he said high school high school okay great 
um, if you were a really skillful teacher, you could allow students to tease you, right? Um, and that would be, you know, it's extraordinary. Not every teacher is going to let that happen. But if you allow that to happen, it just opens up the classroom, right? It really does. And maybe, I mean, you'd have to be extraordinary, fairly careful about this, but, you know, some of the sort of outspoken, easygoing, smart kids, maybe, you could even tease them a little bit, you know, very carefully. Um, and that just creates a mood of learning. Um, in the sutra, what I mentioned before is that Vimalakirti comes off as maybe a little bit harsh um, in his teasing of the disciples. For us, it's hilarious, but I don't think Shariputra thought it was so funny. And so he won't go visit Vimalakirti when the Buddha asks him to. I mean, who wouldn't do what the Buddha says? So um, maybe it's a little overboard, but for us, when we read it, the teasing is beautiful, right? The goddess is teasing Shariputra. Um, Vimalakirti's teasing the Bodhisattva of wisdom. Um, I think, yeah, the, the, Manjushri is teasing Vimalakirti too. Um, you know, nobody's teasing the Buddha, but okay, there, <laughs> there are certain limits, but um, uh, it's an important part of the sutra and it's an important part of the being able to let go of the seriousness where you still got the seriousness, the teasing can be making a really good point, but it's doing it playfully and it's doing it with some joy. And if it's done well, everybody can laugh. And when everybody laughs, it's just a great thing. Yeah. I said there's a difference between teasing and bullying. Did you hear that? No, between teasing and bullying. Bullying, absolutely. That's a good dichotomy to keep in mind, too. Um, or teach, uh, teasing and criticizing. Or, you know, teasing is a way to maybe hint at a critique or maybe not. But to do it so playfully, it just isn't bullying. And... Um, Nothing Vimalakirti says in the sutra is bullying or the goddess, um, but it's some pretty heavy-duty teasing. <laughs> Dale, thank you so much. Unless there's another uh, last question or comment, uh, we could have our bodhisattva verses and then... Uh, announcements and then our closing service. But uh, any last comments or questions? Uh, we have one more here in the Zendo. I have I have a good friend. Maybe who, speak up just a little bit, Jen. Oh, I you. have a good friend who uh, is really intellectually into evolution and believes that the male and female characters were determined by evolution, and it was important for the propagation of the species, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, and I'm so proud of my own evolution because when my children were born, I found out that I loved them. And my job was not as important to me. My own development or, you know, my own projects were not as important to me as seeing the children develop and to grow. And uh, he, he felt like... Uh, this was a step up 
in evolution from what he had learned in school and I guess in life. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's good. Yeah. There's, there are important um, analogies between the basic Buddhist teachings about impermanence and dependent arising and no self. If you get those two, three very important basic teachings, which are really the essence of shunyata or emptiness, um, those um, can be mapped onto our own thinking about evolution in really important ways. Um, the um that uh that all mammals would come to um just naturally love their offspring that is take care of them because they can't take care of themselves and to love them as they love themselves right so a mother's love for her child is that deep right um she'll die for her to save her child um she will do anything for her child uh, that that evolved out of earlier um, forms of life, um, that that's not true of, of earlier evolved forms of life, is something extraordinary. And it means that um, that offspring can be vulnerable for, um, for certain periods of time and grow into a maturity, grow into a different state, rather than being automatically born to already be what you need to be to survive. Um, so that evolutionary movement um, is already there prior to human beings emerging, um, but it comes to a very high level in human beings because, um, you know, our kids aren't really on their own for many years. Other mammals, you know, you got to, maybe you get three months, maybe you get six months, but after that, you're pretty much on your own. So it allows for the development of the brain and it allows for the development of human culture in ways that gives us this highly evolved status that allows us to have a dharma, to have teachings and have have a difference between highly skillful ways of living and unskillful ways. So thank you for pointing out the your friend's analogy with evolution. It's really, it's worth our thinking about. 